Well, good morning. If you're new with us, my name is Tim, and I'm the lead pastor, and it really is an honor to worship with you this morning. We have been, over the last couple of weeks, in this series of talks about relationships, and and we tend to think, and many thought we were just going to be talking about romantic relationships, and we took the first two weeks really talking about how to fight for healthy relationships, how to build relationships that are valuable and helpful and contribute to the good in our lives and help us to become everything that we were created to be. We kind of use this image and this verse from Proverbs to help us understand the reality that relationships have struggles, they have difficulties, and in Proverbs it says that um, if you have no ox, then the stable is clean. But with an ox comes great benefit. I'm not sure if you kind of understand that reality. You can plow a field and harvest a field much more quickly or cover much more ground with an ox than you can without. But if you have an ox, you're also going to have to clean the stable. You're going to have to deal with the, the poo. Right? And an ox is going to drop about 65 pounds of poo a day, 12 tons a year. So if you have any kind of relationship, you can expect from a healthy ox, a healthy relationship, about 12 tons of poo a year. The problem is when it gets sick, and that gets a lot more. When your relationships get out of balance, and there is way more poo than benefits, that's when you have a problem, and we need to figure out how to have those healthy relationships, and so we spent some time in that first message going over what that looks like and, and how to build those relationships and when to know how to step out of a relationship, and then last week, we, we spent some time understanding the single most important component of every relationship, trust. And how trust is actually something we can behave our way into in any relationship. That trust is built on character and competence. And and that when we have integrity and the right motives, when we have uh, capability and produce results, then we develop trust in our relationships. Whether it's a, a friendship, a dating relationship, marriage, or work relationships. And every relationship works well or poorly based on the level of trust. When there's no trust, everything slows down, everything bogs down, and suspicion begins to be the dominant reaction. You have to have trust to have healthy relationships. And you can go back and listen to those on the podcast or on our website, but today we do actually kind of shift a little bit. And I want to talk today about marriage, and next week, Pastor Brendan will be talking about um, singleness and dating. Now, when Anita and I first met, I was new youth pastor at a church in West Virginia, and I was hosting an event for these teenagers that I was there to get to know and was completely distracted by this beautiful, red-headed college student who was volunteering. And we talked at different times throughout the night. And I was not at the time the the bearded, put together, you know, cool, suave guy that I am. <laughs> I can't even get it out. Um, 
this was a clumsy beginning to things. We were talking, and I went to sit down on the edge of a table. Turns out it was a ping pong table and not a stable one of that. And I nearly crashed to the floor, caught myself just in time for my Mountain Dew to spill all over me. So now I smelled and like Mountain Dew, was sticky all night, but it wasn't too bad because she smelled like onion because in the game she took a bite out of an onion like an apple. I'm not really sure the motive behind that one other than the kids wouldn't take the bait, so she thought she would impress me with a bite out of an onion. <laughs> and it worked, and, and then we went and we're hanging out and met for bagels a few days later in the morning at this little place. And uh, I dropped something, and I didn't realize, too distracted, what was happening. And I bent over to pick it up, but I bent over too close to the magazine rack, and I just went down and hit my head and had this nice mark on my forehead for a week. And it was a mess. But it was clear from the beginning that I had just fallen head over heels for her. And it wasn't long before I spoke up first and said those words, those very vulnerable words, not knowing what was going to come back. And I said, I love you. And I got a stare. I did. It wasn't until two weeks later on Valentine's Day that she said, I love you for the first time. About six months after that, we were engaged with the plans to be married the next summer, but those plans didn't last. We were so in love that we just had to get married right away, so we moved the wedding from July to December the 18th, 2004, and we have been married as of last December for 15 years, all with a very clumsy beginning. And lots of broken things along the way. But as I, as I thought about it, I then began to think, like, what does this even mean? Like we say, it's like I was just so in love. We are in love. And, and we, we want to get married. And we say things to, to teachers like, be sure that you're in love. Be sure you really love this person. And love is like this junk drawer word. You just throw everything into it, right? Like, I love the brisket sandwich from McGrady's Grill, and I love fishing, and I love Anita, and I love God. I, I love hydrant, and it all, like, fits into this one thing. So what is it we're really talking about when it comes to our relationship? What is love? One of Jesus' followers named John wrote in 1 John 3.16 that we know what true love is, because of Jesus' love for us in giving his life. That in Jesus, in the, the, his life and death and resurrection, we see what real love is. And it begins to show us that, that love is both this noun and a verb. It is, a, it is something that we can know, but it's also something that we do. He shows us that love is always self-giving, not self-serving. Real, true love, the love that Jesus demonstrates, is not about what I can get out of this relationship. It's not about what I feel or what this relationship does for me. Real love is a self-giving love and one that serves. 
Jesus in his last day with his disciples says that I'm going to give you an example to follow. And he gets with these 12 guys who are probably somewhere around 19 or 20 years old. And he begins to wash their feet. I don't know if you have been around a teenage boy's feet in a while, but that is love. And he gets down on his knees and he washes. And listen, it's even worse now that they're wearing these stupid whatever sandals all the time. I can't even remember the name. Brendan wears them all the time. <laughs> tacos, tacos, whatever. Like, you can tell how old I am, right? Uh, so much for being cool. <laughs> That's not even a word anymore, is it? Anyway. It stinks. It's gross. And Jesus said, this is how you love. And he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. This, I gave you this as an example. I want you to understand what it is to love. Real love serves. It's self-giving. And it's way more than a feeling. Right? Like, we are commanded to love God and love one another. You can't command a feeling. Right? You can't command someone to feel something. But if God is commanding us to love, it must be possible for us to do it. And so we see that it's much more than a feeling. There is action involved. Self-sacrifice. There is service that is love. Now, in, the, in ancient languages, they did a little better job than we do and when it comes to words that we translate as love, they had more than one word to, to describe different kinds of connection that we just throw in the junk drawer. And one of those words was Raya, R-A-Y-A-H, Raya. And it refers to friendship and companionship. Two people who work together, partner together, enjoy one another, benefit from this relationship together, this friendship. And then the, the next one is Dodd, D-O-D. Now, Dodd has to do with uh, passion, attraction, desire. You know, it's that feeling when you, like, yeah, I want to make babies with that person. That's what we're talking about. That's Dodd. Passion, fire, excitement. And then the third is Ahava, A-H-A-V-A. And it's kind of... Rhea and Dodd and then some more, right? It's like, it's fire with staying power. It's love from the deepest part of our very being. It's unending and relentless. It's ahava. You need ahava if marriage is going to work, <laughs> right? Like you can, you can have friendship, but if there's not that spark, it's just not going to move past that. But if it's all spark and no friendship, then it either blows up or burns out. I mean, because look, we all get older. We all wrinkle and sag and look different in 10, 20, and 30 years. It's life. Things change. But we need Ahava. That is this committed, devoted Staying power, fire, passion, all rolled into one. Now marriage, marriage has been a hot button topic. It's been talked a lot about in our culture the last couple of decades. Really trying to 
this conversation of how do we define marriage. And there are groups of people who want to define it in all types of ways and and, and all types of uh, almost as a, well, as a contract between two consenting adults or more than two consenting adults. And, and, and then there is this small or shrinking but still million strong group of people who are arguing for a view of marriage that is one man, one woman, one time, forever. Now, I'm going to be straight, like that group of people I don't really love the way they talk to other people. <laughs> I don't really love the mean-spirited way that they, they argue their point. I don't love the anger. I don't love the way that it so often is, is cruel and, and hypocritical. But I, but I need to be honest. I can't find any scriptural basis. For defining Christian marriage as anything other than one man and one woman committed to one another for a lifetime. I can't find that anywhere in scripture. Now, I'm, I'm going to continue my honesty. You know me if you've been around well enough that what's important to me and what I believe, I'll die for. I live for it. This is the most important thing. I'm going to hold on to what I believe. But I also hold on to the possibility that I might be wrong. I assume the possibility I'm wrong about everything. And I hope I'm wrong about this. I don't think I am. I can't find anywhere. But I hope one day someone writes the book or presents the argument or helps me to see something I'm not seeing in Scripture that changes what I think Scripture says. But as for now, I can't find it. And I've looked. I've tried. I've dug. I've wanted to justify it any number of other things for people I care about, believe in, and love. But if I'm honest, I, I, I can't find it in Scripture. I mean, I can see things move throughout Scripture and change. Like there are things that are taught in the beginning that are contradicted in the middle and completely changed by the end. Like you see that development of beliefs in Scripture. This is one of those things that kind of runs all the way through not kind of does and and really today I don't want to I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to define marriage like most of us have our definition accepted a biblical definition or or whatever we're not going to get into that we kind of know what we define as marriage but here's what I believe most of us have no idea what marriage is for we have no idea the purpose of marriage. Like we enter into it in the hopes that it will make us happy or feel loved or satisfied or whole. Like, I'm, like you complete me garbage, right? Like if we're going to find the one who makes it all better. And we'll come back around to those thoughts. So I'm glad you laughed. That made me feel a little better. In Matthew chapter 19 some Pharisees, some religious teachers, they come to Jesus. They say, hey, we have a question. Should a, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? And two things. First, 
It always says man divorces wife because they misunderstood God's whole created order. And, and I'm just going to, this is a little aside. Because, well, we're in the South and it's a valuable thing to say. The very first preacher of the resurrection was a woman. Jesus commissioned her to go and preach the good news of the resurrection. There in the early church, there were women apostles, St. Junia. There were women bishops. There were women preachers. There were women leaders. Paul wrote to specific churches about specific women who needed to be quiet. We also hear him write to specific churches about specific men who need to shut their mouths. The church misses out. Humanity misses out when either one is devalued. And that's happened in lots of ways. Men for generations have devalued women, partly because we realize society can go continue along without very many of us. We need lots of women. And so we try to make ourselves feel more important. And then in more recent years, there have been groups of women who, in efforts to raise up and increase the value of women in society, have, who have demeaned men. And that's not good either. Both are valuable. Both are important. Both are connected. And we need both in every capacity that God calls in the church. That's how we operate here. Unashamedly. We believe it's what scripture teaches. We believe it's what Paul meant. We said there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That in Christ we are one. And Christ can do whatever he wants. I mean, he's the only person who ever said, hey, I'm going to die. And then I'm going to come back. And then he actually pulled it off. Like the only one. So we figure he knows something we don't. And if he said, hey, Mary, go preach. We're going to let it happen. Because that's what he does. Now, that has nothing to do with marriage. Maybe it does in a minute. We'll see. But it just needed to say that. So what was happening? Right? Back to the Pharisees asking the question. Can a man divorce his wife? Can divorce happen for any reason? And what they're getting at is an argument that was happening. Right? In that time and in that culture, there were these two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai. And, and Hillel pointed back to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and this verse that basically says, If you're married... Right, And a man is displeased with his wife because he finds something indecent about her. That's the phrase, indecent about her. Then he may write a certificate of divorce. And Hillel said, well, that word is kind of ambiguous, just like it is in our language. And, and so what it means is really just anything. If she gains five pounds after you get married, that's indecent. If, if she burns dinner or, or blackens the toast too much or forgets to take out the trash, that's indecent. You can write a certificate. Right? And then there was Shammai who said, there's only one thing that is being referred to in this, and that's adultery. If, if man or woman goes outside of marriage for sex, then they are breaking the vows and bounds and ties of the marriage relationship and divorce is simply accepting the reality that's already happened. And there was this argument going on within the Jewish culture at this time. And these Pharisees come to Jesus and basically like, who's right? And I love Jesus' response. He says, well, haven't you read the Bible? 
He replied, they record that from the beginning. And what he's saying with haven't you read the Bible is like, hey, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. It's not about how to end your marriage. It's what was God's dream for your marriage? That's the right question. What was your marriage meant to be about? What was it meant to be for? What was it meant to become? That's the right question. What did God dream for marriage? And he goes back to Genesis and says, They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Just ask the wrong question. And Jesus takes them back to the beginning. And so what I want to do today is just take us back to the beginning a little bit and look at the purposes we find there for marriage. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, what you find is kind of this 30,000 foot view of creation. This story that unpacks the days. And at the end of every day, the creator pronounces, ooh, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. And then Genesis chapter 2 is a retelling of the same story. Have you ever caught that? It's like the second telling of the same story, just focused on different parts. And we hear this moment in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where God just kind of is like he's creating, and he says, whoops, whoops, it's not good. It's not good. Adam is alone, and this isn't good. This isn't working. Me and Adam all alone, that's not going to work. He needs more than me. <laughs> more than just God. He, he needs more. And Adam is alone. And, and part of the problem is he's created in the image of God. And the image of God is relationship. Father, Son, Spirit. He is relationship. And so if we are in his image and we are created for relationship, but the second is that well, his calling was just too big. Right? He was put in the Garden of Eden to care for and tend and develop the garden. And some of us kind of think about it like our backyard, and like there's this little garden with a few trees and, and plants. Think of it more like the national forests, like maybe all the national forests in our country combined. And his job was to care for that garden. It's a little too much for one person to handle. And God realizes that he's pushed this calling, this purpose in Adam, and he needs help. He needs help. In Genesis 2.21, God creates a helper for Adam named Eve. And the very first words on a human's lips in scripture is a love song. A love song to Eve. And then God interrupts it and he pronounces their marriage. He says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And these two are united in one. I want to just kind of like, what, 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 God? Like this? What's this? This is why. Like, what is, what is why? If, you, if you've been married, if you are married, you probably can relate to like, okay, we got married, we were so in love, now what? Like, what's this supposed to be about? What are we trying to do here? What's happening? And, and I think if we circle back into Genesis the way that Jesus did, that we can begin to get a concept of what marriage is for. And then we can either, if we're single, if we're younger, we can begin to plan and think about our relationships so that it leads to a marriage that accomplishes 
what God created marriage for. And we do need to realize that it was, marriage wasn't something that developed 50,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. Like something, like we see it from the very beginning of creation. Every single culture that has ever walked the planet has marriage. Every culture has marriage. It was something built into us from the beginning, but why? Why? So as we go back into Genesis, the first thing that we see is it was built for friendship. We were, marriage has as one of its purposes, friendship, companionship. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, being alone is not good. Now Brendan will talk more about this next week, but just to kind of side note, singles, you have to, you, you answer this purpose in different ways, in different ways. If you are single and you go to work, go to the gym and go home with your cat or your dog and you eat that TV dinner by yourself every night, then God would look at that life and say, mm, that's not good. That's not good. You need to be intentional about hospitality, about being with people, about building relationships. They're just going to look different. They're going to look different, but it's important. In fact, marriage, marriage reveals the depth of God's love as two people pour into that one relationship, all of that love. But singleness reveals the breadth of God's love as it is love shared with lots of people in different ways and different levels with different boundaries. But we need to see that we were created to be together, created in God's image for relationship. It's not just me and God. I need people around me to be who I was created to be. And marriage is that person that has been given. It is the, the word used is akad, this one. The two are fused together at the deepest place of their being. The two become one. We need one another. But it goes, it continues further, like Proverbs 2, 17, when the, the writer of this wisdom begins to talk about his spouse, he, he calls her a loop, that's a Hebrew word, a loop, A-L-L-U-P, and it, it means best friend. It means best friend. You can have all of the fire and passion in a relationship, but if there is not friendship in that marriage, it will crumble. You need to be able to share in life and joy and activities and, and the things that bring about those joys. You need to be contributing to one another's lives. It's not about this isolated partnership for physical enjoyment and having kids and paying bills. It's not a business deal. It's not a contract. At the very core of marriage is meant to be friendship. The second purpose of marriage is gardening. Gardening. Not like actually growing vegetables. But we see in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 that Adam was put in the garden to work it. And in Genesis 1:28, he is given the task of ruling, having dominion over, and subduing the earth. He is given purpose, meaning, calling. He is put on the planet. He is made for something, a big something. Right? He is he's put there to garden. To work that garden. Now, this rule and subdue, it, it actually has meaning beyond that. Like, to rule is to partner in moving creation forward. 
And, and to subdue is to take these raw elements and bring about its potential. So what we see is that God created this world. He created this massive garden. He put Adam in it and said, okay, I'm giving you all of this raw material. And from this raw material, I need you to partner with me. And we're going to develop society. And we're going to develop cities. And we're going to de- develop this land. And we're going to bring the best out of it. And together, we're going to rule and subdue this planet the way I created it to be. We're going to move it forward. But he looks and he's like, wow, Adam, like I gave you a job description. It's a little too big for you by yourself. So I'm going to give you a helper, a suitable helper. Suitable means equal, equal. And helper, like in our culture, we kind of think of like an assistant, but that's not what the word means. It's a partner, an equal partner in the work that I've called you to. In fact, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the helper. So men, if you tend to think of, of your wife or the, the, the women around you as that weaker sex, the less capable, there to help you do what you're here to do, then you've misunderstood the Bible. Because chances are the helper he gives you is maybe more capable than you. In fact, in fact, I would say, guys, I would tell my son, if you're dating someone and you don't feel like you're dating way up, you're dating the wrong person. I married way up. Like, way up. That clumsy, you know, 25-year-old falling all over himself got lucky and blessed and life has developed and brought about the best out of both of us as we have partnered together in the things that God made us to do and has called us to do. And guys, you just need to understand she's probably not the weaker one. And at best, we're designed to be equal partners in what God is calling us to. So if you're married, what's your gardening project? What were you made to do? What did God bring you together to accomplish for the good of others, for the good of the world, for the good of your family, for the good of your community? What's your gardening project? Ladies, young ladies, don't Get involved with a dude whose biggest gardening project is beating Call of Duty. Can I tell you, the average guy spends 10,000 hours playing video games by the time he's 21. Do you know it takes 10,000 hours to perfect any skill? So you can become an artist, an architect, a musician, a carpenter, or you can beat Call of Duty. Don't marry the guy playing the video game. I mean, I'm not saying never, but 10,000 hours? Holy cow. That, what, how are you going to partner with that person, right? You could, really, you could spend your life with, with playing video games? Don't, don't waste your time with the guy who doesn't have a project, who doesn't have a calling, who doesn't understand why they're here or what they're made for. 
Guys, don't, don't spend time with a girl who wants you to take care of her. Who wants you to solve things and pay for things. Don't, don't, that's not the one you need. God's called you to something. Find the woman who will partner with you in that. Walk beside you with that. Bring the best out of you. Believe in you and help you. And together you'll accomplish way more than either of you could on your own. If you're already married, figure out what that thing is. What it is you're called. It can be anything, right? Like restaurants can be that. Like they serve food. They They are purposely making it better for everyone's day who gets to eat there. Or the, or the person who is, who, whether it's a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or a car repair person, I love a person who can fix a vehicle. Holy cow. Right? Like that makes the day better. You are serving those around you. It can be in the church. It can be outside the church. It doesn't matter. Find that thing that God puts you here and puts you together for to contribute to the world. What's your gardening project? Number three, and middle schoolers, I'm sorry, we got to go here. You can chuckle if you want. Marriage is for sexuality. Marriage is for sexuality. Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve were both naked and not ashamed. Two young naked people running around a garden having fun. Sounds like a bad episode of reality TV. But it's the first love story in the Bible. It's the first love story in the Bible. God made our bodies like the whole thing. He didn't look at Adam and Eve enjoying one another and think, that's not what I made that for. Like he understood, he made sex, right? That was his idea for our good and enjoyment and the multiplication of society. Our bodies are designed to share. But marriage is the only container, the only context in which that works well. It's the only time that really works the way God designed it to. If we look in the story of Genesis, sex is good and beautiful and wonderful. But the enemy is going to try to distort everything good. And make it about something else. God wants what's good for us. And, he, and, and sex is meant to be enjoyed and to flourish and to be everything it was meant to be inside of marriage. Outside of marriage, it creates drama and pain. There, there'd be no nighttime TV if people waited until they got married to have sex. Because nobody wants to watch a show about people going about their business in the hospital. The only thing everybody's watching is all the drama caused by everybody having sex with each other. But it only leads to pain and suffering and struggle, right? You think about it, too, like that, he says that we're fused, that God is fusing together. The sex is meant to bring us together. And so people who start dating and then start having sex, we can often see those relationships like, man, why are they still together? Like we, Everyone can see all they do is fright, fight. There's no friendship there. They don't get along. They don't like any of the same things. They should have broken up after a couple of months. But things got physical and it gets really hard to 
pull something apart that gets fused together and three years later they're finally breaking up and they hurt way worse than they ever should have. And the areas of their personality and areas of their identity got sacrificed to try to stay in this mess. And now they're trying to refigure out who they are and discover what they were supposed to do with the three years they lost in this stupid relationship just because they wanted like two minutes of fun. So here's like two minutes. Okay. God wants what's best. And I, and I understand every movie, every TV show, all of them. They make it seem like the married people have no sex or boring sex when they do. And that it's the worst kind of sex. And that the, the young people who are skipping around with different people every other week, that they're having the great sex. And it's a lie. Every scientific research project, every statistic actually shows that those who have been married and having sex with the same person for 10, 15, 20 years have more fulfilling, better sex than the single people. This sex is terrible. And if it's all you've ever experienced, you don't know what sex can be yet. Get married. Learn one another. Enjoy one another. Build that for 10 or 15 or 20 years intentionally, and you'll discover what the best sex is, the kind of sex that God designed. You've not heard that word in a sermon so many times ever before, have you? Like, church could be twice as full next week. Is he talking about sex again? But listen, Christians should have the best sex. We should have the best money management. We should have the best family. We should have the best jobs. We should have the best health. We understand something that nobody else, life begins in Jesus and flows out of that. And when we go to that tree of good and bad, tov and ra, and we choose God's way, it turns out better for us. So it should be better. Not only that, it's like, it's better for society. There was a guy named J.D. Unwin who wrote a book that's like 600 pages long called Sex and Culture. And he looked at 83 different cultures, nearly every culture that has existed on our planet. And he compared the flourishing of the culture to their sexual ethics, right? Like the boundaries for sex. And the, the, the societies with the strictest boundaries for sex show the greatest flourishing and contribution to the world. In fact, as soon as any society started to loosen the boundaries in the names of sexual freedom... The society started to go down. And in fact, it takes three generations, 100 years, and that society was a dead society every single time. Dead society means no significant contributions to art, architecture, literature, so it's academics, no, no significant contribution to the well-being of the world. Do you know our country is two generations into that? We're coming to the end of the second generation since this sexual revolution in our country. And we can look. Our music compared to 50 years ago is terrible. Our art is insignificant. Our architecture is less interesting. Like society as a whole has been moving toward less and less country. Academics, where do we even stand in relationship to the rest of the world? We're watching our society die. So that we can have freedom. <laughs> freedom? Freedom is not permission to do whatever you want to do. 
It's not even the ability to do whatever you want to do. Real freedom is the ability to do what's best for you and those around you. That's real freedom. See, we live bound in servanthood to the goddess Aphrodite in our culture. Aphrodite is alive and well. Years ago, she may have had big stone temples filled with, with prostitutes that were there for worship, and people who wanted life to work out better, work better for them, that wanted the blessings of Aphrodite would go to the temple, right? They would go to that temple, and they would sleep with one of the prostitutes, someone they barely knew, had no relationship with, in the hopes that it would make life turn out better. They would be more fulfilled and happy. It's the very same thing. The temple's just a bed in a stranger's house, somebody we barely know, third date, in the hopes that it'll make us feel better, more, fu- more fulfilled, happy, connected. Aphrodite is alive and well and destroying our culture and robbing, robbing people of their real freedom. They can't even choose to do what's best for them because they're choosing what they think they have to. They're not really free. We're not really free when we're living this way. We'll move on. (laughs) That could be a whole series in itself. It won't be soon, but maybe one day. Number four, the fourth purpose for marriage is family. The very first command in the entire Bible, make babies. Make babies. Be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 1.28, in our culture, Our culture tends toward two weird extremes. Like, really, the first one connects to what we were just talking about. Sex, yes. Marriage, maybe. Kids, not likely. But we're stupid, right? We don't realize the loop, right? Sex makes babies. So you don't get to just say yes to sex all the time and no to babies all the time because eventually you're going to have the baby. And the kids, they're the ones paying the price for this. They're the ones paying the price for a culture that has said yes to sex, maybe to marriage, and not likely to kids. Because what we see in our culture today is that one-fifth of pregnancies end in abortion. 20%. One-third of kids in our country go to bed without dad in the house. Without any father in the house. And don't mishear me. I'm not talking about a situation that is beyond your control. I'm talking about a cultural expectation and movement. And I know there are so many single moms doing all that they can and wish it was different than it is. And half, half of all kids born to moms under 30 are born out of wedlock. This is not God's dream for marriage and family. It's not what he intended. It's not what he wants for us. Family is meant to continue to join together in the, the commission, the, the mission of the kingdom of God in the world, this ruling and dominion and subduing of earth. Like we need more people to do what we're called and created to do here. And family is that building block of society that we, he builds these things out on. Now, I understand not everyone can or should or will have kids. There are other ways to fulfill this purpose. The other, the other extreme from that previous view I just described is more common in the church. And you can not like me, but it's a problem when marriages are so centered on kids that the kids become an idol. 
when we worship them and bow down to every whim and every desire and everything they think they want in every moment. Right? And, our, and, our, and I get the church and the culture feeds it. Somebody gets married when you're having kids. As if somehow that had to be the next thing right now. And not really doing what you're supposed to do unless you have kids or have another or another or whatever. And in these idolized, these, these situations that idolize kids, I mean, they, they run the house. They do whatever they want, whenever they want. And we, and we exist to serve them, to make life easier for them. Everything's about them. It used to be like helicopter parents that just were there to oversee and make sure things happen. Now it's lawnmowers, right? Like you're cutting like a bush hog, going through and making that path as smooth as you can so your kid never gets hurt. They never stub their, their toe. They never scrape their knee. They never try anything hard. And we wonder, we wonder why we have this whole generation that is insecure and lacks confidence. Well, we made life too easy. We just bowled everything over and just raised up these kids and like, here, our life is about you. They tell us where to go and where not to go. They tell us when they're going to go to bed and when they're going to get up. They're going to, they're going to run the house, right? Like we have, we have and, this, and this is killing us, right? You got moms who are completely worn out from everything they do for their kids and dads who are disconnected and frustrated because they don't get any time with their wife because it's all about the kids. And then 18 years, 20 years later, they move out and you got two strangers in the house. Friendship's gone, companionship's gone, sex is gone, and the kids are gone. So now what? Right? We're, we're, we're... Mom, if you've got too much to do, teach your kid to do it. Like, that's your job anyway, really. Since my kids went to kindergarten, I have not made their lunch once. They pack their own lunch every day or they go hungry. Only had to go hungry once or twice before they stopped forgetting. There's a little list in the pantry. I, I do the dishes maybe once a week. You have two kids. One unloads and one loads. When I was a kid, the dishwasher broke, and for 10 years they didn't fix it. You know why? Because they had three boys. They said they had three dishwashers. We all moved, off, moved away. They got in a new house and bought a dishwasher. I don't mow the lawn. I don't vacuum the floors. I don't do my kids' laundry. I mean, they're almost 13 and, they're, and 10. They can put stuff in the laundry and put stuff in it, dry it. If they shrink something, they'll learn. They can, they can, they can handle those things. They can prep meals. They, they cook us breakfast sometimes. And it just starts with just being intentional and realizing, hey, our family is a team, it's a partnership coming together to do what God created us to do together, and that is not just make babies and take care of them. And I know this isn't fun, and I know this probably offends some of you, and I'm a little sorry. Mostly I'm sorry for you to be so worn out and disconnected and distracted by just feeling like you had to do all of that. You know where confidence really comes from? comes from affirmation and doing hard things. We got a generation of kids who've never done hard things. They've just gotten all the affirmation, so they think they're great. 
but they had nothing to show for it. And they don't really have the confidence needed to step out into the world and do what they were created to do, to answer God's call on their life, to lead in their families. When kids usurp the focus, marriage suffers. Parents grow distant. Mom is always worn out and dad's frustrated. We're meant to create life-giving families together that raise up a next generation to take our place, to do what we do. My goal is that at 18, when they walk out of the house and head off to college or wherever, nobody has to teach them how to do their laundry. Nobody has to teach them how to pump gas or change their oil. My daughter will learn those things too or she won't drive. I can guarantee she'll learn them. She already knows what she wants to drive. It's, it, it's my job to make sure that they're equipped to be adults, not to take care of them all along the way and do everything for them. That's not why you exist, mom or dad. These are the four purposes we see in Genesis. We see friendship. We see gardening, and we see sexuality, and we see family, but the truth is we all stood at that tree of good and bad, and we, we chose raw. We chose bad. And life's broken. And you put two broken people together, you don't get one whole fixed person. You get a whole big broken mess, a pile of ashes and broken pieces. And marriage doesn't fix that. Marriage doesn't complete you or make you whole. It's not designed to do that by the creator. Like we, we tend to have more of a Greek mythology view, right? Like Greek mythology saw human beings as created as these two-headed, four-armed, four-legged creatures that worshiped the gods and the, the gods lived off of their worship. But these two-headed, four-armed things started getting more powerful and the gods got scared. So Zeus came down and split these two-headed, four-legged things into two. Half the power, twice the worship works out well for Zeus. And what they believed was that every human being spends their entire life looking for the other half that was cut off of them. Looking for the one that will complete them, their other half. And none of that is biblical. None of that is the way God creates. There's not just one person out there for you. There's not just this other half you need to find so that you can be this two-headed, four-armed thing again. They're not going to complete you. If you are addicted, if you are broken, if you are insecure, if you are anxious, if you are depressed before you get married, you will be all of those things after you get married. It won't fix it. It won't fix it. It's not designed to. It's not meant to. We have to let marriage be marriage and let God be God. Marriage has its purpose. But God is the only one that heals us, that transforms us, that takes us back to that tree and helps us choose what is good, that takes us back and gives us the strength to imitate the Father, to love well, to fulfill our calling and our purpose. 
And then coming together, the purpose and the strength is multiplied. As we are helping each other on this process of becoming new creations that Paul describes. It says that when you come to Christ, that he makes you into a new person. You are recreated. But there's this process that happens. And marriage helps that process. And this is where we wrap this up. I thought I was a pretty great guy until I got married. And then I realized I was a mess. I was demanding and selfish and I wanted my way. And I was rude and inconsiderate. And, and something about living with another human being that closely revealed all of these areas that God wanted me to grow. And it gave me the opportunity to grow and see things I wouldn't have seen any other way. And so this side of Eden, there's that fifth purpose of helping us grow, recreating in the image of God that that person does for us. And we could get mad and we could blame them or we can become who we were created to be and allow marriage to help us do that. Any close relationship has a tendency to do that. I know this is a lot of information and kind of heavy and probably offended most everyone at some point. Man, here's the reality. Anita and I met in 2003, but in 1999, I was married once before. Three years later, she said, I don't love you, I don't know if I ever did, and I'm leaving tomorrow. And by the end of that year, we were divorced. It nearly killed me, nearly robbed me of the opportunity to do what I was made to do. Because I didn't understand any of this. It broke me into pieces. I didn't know if I would survive. Now the beauty is that we have a God who takes everything and nothing is wasted. He brings about so much better. And I am so thankful for 2003 and the life I have now. I did it wrong. And if maybe... By staying an extra 10 or 15 minutes today and hearing this, there's somebody else who's saved from doing what I did, then it's worth it. That's why we teach this. That's why we teach about the dumb ox and all the 12 tons of poo. Because <laughs> there are some of us who think marriage is supposed to be easy. Relationship is supposed to be easy. And when it gets hard, we run. In fact, we just need to help a sick ox get healthy. Some of, some of us don't understand trust, and we try to talk our way into something that we talk our way out of a problem we behaved ourselves into, and we just need to learn to rebuild trust. Some of us have no idea what our marriage is for, and if we could begin to see how God designed it, begin to live in that purpose, we would find that the byproduct is the happiness and joy we were seeking. It can be the best part of life. And if you're married, it's your first ambition, your first passion, and your loudest gospel message, proclaiming the, de the depth of God's love. If you're single, we'll hear about that next week. But that, too, is your loudest gospel message, proclaiming the breadth of God's love.
Let's pray, and then we'll enjoy a homemade cookie together and have a great afternoon. Father, you are good and faithful, and we are grateful for this thing you designed called marriage. And God, we understand so little of it. We make a mess of it so often. But when it's good, it's great. So would you help us as your people to understand what you've said is good and to follow you and your purpose? And would you show us how to be who you created us to be? individually and together and as a people and would your light shine from this place in goldsboro making a difference in the lives of all those around us in jesus name amen hey, enjoy your day it was great to have you here if you're new i'd love to meet you have a great afternoon and of course enjoy a homemade cookie on your way out <laughs>